Well, I'm glad that baptism went smoothly. First time I did that in type of baptism here at our building, Jim Abraham chickened out and grabbed a glass as I was lowering him down. I'm, I still tell him his right hand's not going to heaven, so. Uh, for those of you just kind of stepping into our services today for the first time in a while, we, we've been on a journey of having a conversation with God. And it's really been based upon one of the promises, really one of the elements of comfort that Jesus gave to his disciples when they really began to anticipate that he was going to leave them alone on the planet. You know, he gave them the promise of heaven. He gave them the promise of the Holy Spirit. But in the middle of that, he made this promise to them, which is at the top of your sermon outlines, where he said, I tell you the truth, or I assure you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. So we've been on a journey of exploring what does it really mean for God to do greater in us? What does it really mean for God to do greater through us? And what we agreed to do originally was at least for a season in our lives seek to reject the lie that our faith is really supposed to be all about being a crutch. Just the way... To, for us to get through life, if you will. And many of us, that's the way we've approached faith. Life is hard, there's lots of problems, there's difficulties, and et cetera, and we see our faith as a means of kind of being our crutch to get us through. But clearly, when Jesus offers us greater works, he's really promising us a life of victory, a life for us to be wearing the victor's crown. And, and part of that realization for us is that when Jesus talks about doing greater works, he's not trying to make you impressive. He's trying to make the Father impressive. Jesus' passion when he was on the planet was to glorify the Father through what he did. Now that he's in heaven, he wants to glorify the Father through what he does through us. It's still all about Jesus. Jesus isn't trying to make you who do these greater works than he did He's not trying to make you the, the talk of the town. He's not trying to be you that everybody's scrambling to get an interview on primetime television. He's trying to bring glory to the Father through you. Now, part of that struggle is that we have to really look at the way we believe. Notice that Jesus said, he who believes in me. And we explored this last week, and if you'd love to listen to these messages, they're, they're on our website. You can just go and underneath the resources page, there's a button there for our our sermons, and, and all of them are recorded there for you to be able to download and listen to or listen to on a streaming basis. But last week we looked at the fact that when, when it comes to the kind of belief that Jesus is talking about here, he, he's not talking about belief in terms of, of what we think that Jesus can do for us once we die and leave the planet. He, we're talking about what kind of belief do we have about what God can do for us while we're still on the planet. You know what I mean? And many of us, struggle with having a faith that's way too small when we come to that issue. We, 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 we see the one who's calling, but our eyes are on the one who's called, and we say, I can't do this. And we look at, we know that there's a Lord over our circumstances, but we look at our circumstances, and we just know we can't do this. Jesus, Peter looks at the waves when he's walking on the water, and he says, I, I can't do this, and he begins to sink. So we need to biggie-size our faith and really understand that Jesus can do more in and through us now that he's in heaven than he could ever do 
when he was just here on the planet. Now, today I want to turn our focus in a little different direction. Still very much tied to our text, the spirit of what we've been asking about, because what the disciples had to embrace was that they had experienced faith, they had experienced their relationship with Jesus as the one who stood before them, the one who led out in front of them. They were going to have to adopt a new type of lifestyle where Jesus led through them, and Jesus did through them. It was going to be a change. Sometimes we don't really make that transition well. And I want to start by taking a look at a person that I, I think is often a, a lesser-known member of the Old Testament Hall of Fame and who really begins to present to us one of the challenges that we have if we're going to be people who embrace greater living. If those who are going to be willing to let, leave behind the lesser living and move forward into greater living, there, there, there are some things we need to do. And I, I think this individual, Elisha, speaks to us about that. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19 with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should find one in a chair somewhere around you, in front of you, underneath you, the side or whatever. And our text today is going to be page on 302 in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 19. Let me give you a little background before we get into the story. Uh, first of all, just a little bit about Elisha. Elisha went on to be a tremendous prophet, the successor to Elijah. This is a guy who blinded an entire army simply with his own words. This is a guy who took one of the most powerful leaders on the planet who was suffering from a dreadful disease and gave the instructions on how he could be healed by dipping in the Jordan seven times. This is a guy who could tap his, his cloak on the Jordan River and it would part and make a dry land for him to go across. It's a guy who could bring a young boy back to life who was, who was dead. This is a guy who could make an axe head float. Impressive stuff. Doesn't start out real impressive, at least not from his background. Now, he's going to be called to the prophetic ministry by a guy by the name of Elijah. Many of you know the stories of Elijah, powerful prophet. Probably the most famous story is when he encountered the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel. He, he, he finally comes out of hiding. He's been, he's been kind of in exile for three years as there's been a huge famine over the land. He comes back, he makes himself known, and he tells the king to bring the prophets of Baal to the top of Mount Carmel. And he says, we're going we're gonna to prove once for all who's really God. And so he's outnumbered 400 to 1. And he lets them go first. Nothing happens. Elijah calls for God. God drops the fire from heaven down on his offering and and. All 400 prophets of Baal are killed in victory in the name of God. The king's wife, Jezebel, is not too happy. Those were, those were her guys. And she said a word to Elijah, and she said, You know, all my prophets are dead, and I swear that by tomorrow you're going to be the same way. Now, Elijah runs. He just runs. He's tired. He's fed up. He's drained. He runs. And he runs out and he eventually just crawls up underneath the tree and he goes to sleep. And he wakes up and there's, and there's a bird who's delivering food to him. And he eats the food and he's strengthened and he sleeps some more. 
And he wakes up again, and the bird is back with more food. Okay? This is the first takeout that you have in the Old Testament, all right? And this, and this bird brings this, this food to him. When he's nourished, God said, okay, now you're ready for the journey. I want you to go down to Mount Horeb. That's the place where the Israelites met God when they left Egypt. It's where Moses had his encounter with God. So he, he makes his way down to Mount Horeb, and there God presents himself to him. And he gives Elijah some instructions. He says, I want you to do two things. There's two different guys I want you to anoint as kings over their nations. And then I want you to go find a guy by the name of Elisha. And I want you to call him to be a prophet, to be your successor. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 19 of 1 Kings chapter 19. So Elijah left there. That's Mount Horeb. And he found Elisha, son of Saphat, as he was plowing. Elisha is a plowboy. He's a farmer. He he, he works the farm along with some others. And and, and they're all out together plowing. Many fields in the days of of Elijah and Elisha were were common fields. So they'd have the the village and in all the fields around them, they would work them together and they would all share in the, the harvest together. And so they're out plowing together. Twelve teams of oxen were in front of him and he was with the twelfth team. So you can imagine they're kind of staggered. You know, one set of oxen's here, and the next one's here, and the next one's here. And they're, and they're plowing down the rows, and, 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 and Elisha's on the last set of oxen, okay? So up comes Elijah, and Elijah walked by him, and he threw his mantle over him. Now, the, the mark of the, of the prophet, if you will, the insignia, you know, the uniform, was to wear a mantle. It was like a hairy kind of garment they put over, and so... As, as Elijah is going by Elisha, he, he throws his mantle, you know, n- not probably quite as dramatic as the cold buckets of water, you know, that they do at the end of the, the big victory things, but, but he, he throws his mantle up onto Elisha, and, and symbolically he's calling him to, be, to come follow him and to be a prophet. And it says immediately, Elisha left the auction and he ran to follow Elijah. I told the first service, you know, the imagery that sticks out in my mind is, many of you have seen the movie Forrest Gump? Remember when he's on the ship boat, shrimp boat, and he sees Lieutenant Dan for the first time? You know, he's driving away, and he, and he, and he sees the lieutenant, and he just runs, and he just jumps over the side, and the, and the boat's still going. I mean, I just have this picture here. Here's Elisha. He's plowing along, and, and all of a sudden, he notices this, this garment over his shoulders, and he looks up, and he sees Elijah walking away, and he just, he just leaves the oxen on their own, and he just goes running after him. Just immediate response, pursuit of Elijah. So Elisha left the oxen, and he ran to follow Elijah, and he said, please let me go kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. He goes, let me leave home the right way. Go back, he replied, for what have I done to you? Now, some want to read in here just a word of rebuke, like you've been called, why are you going back? But I don't think there's any of that spirit in the text. There's nothing in that in terms of what Elisha is about ready to do. I think really just Elijah saying, you know, go on back. You know, I, I haven't done anything to you that would prevent you from saying goodbye to your parents, who you're supposed to honor. So he turned back from following him, and he took the team of oxen, and he slaughtered them. With the oxen's wood, wooden yoke, and plow, he cooked the meat, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he left, and he followed Elijah, and he served him. So Elijah get, Elisha gets back home, and, and, and he gathers, he, he takes the two oxen, which were probably the most uh, 
uh, valuable possessions that he had, maybe the most valuable possessions that he would ever have, and he kills both of them. And then he takes the yoke that went around their necks so they could pull together, and the wooden plow that he was driving behind it, and all the apparatus that goes with it, and he turns it all into firewood, and he cooks up the meat, and he invites all his friends and his family, and they have a huge farewell party, and then Elisha leaves. Now, I myself wonder what I would do. Probably as I'm walking back from Elijah and saying, who can I lease these oxen to while I'm gone? You know what I mean? You know, like, who, who, who might want to buy this yoke from me? And my, my plow's kind of, yeah, it's not so good. It's got some dings on it, but maybe I can put it on Craigslist, you know, and somebody can sell it for me, you know. And, and, and we're thinking about how, you know, Elisha, he gets there. What does Elisha do? He takes everything that could hold him to his old life, and he burns it all up because he's getting ready to start a new life. And he's excited about it. He's having a party. Now hold that thought. Move with me back over to the book of Genesis. Very first book in your Bibles. Genesis chapter 12. If you're using one of our few Bibles, our text is on page 9. Some of you are going to immediately recognize this is the call of Abram. Or Abraham. And, and our focus often is the promise that God makes to Abraham. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation, it says in verse 2. And he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And you're going to be a blessing, man. You're going to be a blessing to those who bless you and those who curse you. I'm going to treat with contempt. And all the people of the earth are going to be blessed through you. That, that's what we focus on. Notice what God says to him first. He says, I, I, I'm calling you to greater living, right? He says, first of all, leave your country. Leave your family. Leave your father's house. So I can send you to the land I'm going to show you. Everything that you know around you in Haran, leave your land, leave your extended family, leave your father's house, and go. It's like God saying to Abraham, I can't show you the promised land through your living room window. You've got to go. You've got you to burn up, leave behind everything that's holding on to you so I can take you to greater living. Hold that story. Turn over with me to John chapter 21. I'm building a case here that I'm going to deliver to you in just a minute. So be patient. John chapter 21, 923 in your pew Bibles. little context to this story so it makes sense to us. Jesus has already died on the cross. He's already been buried. Easter Sunday morning is coming. Has already come. He's resurrected. On different occasions, he appears to the disciples. On this particular occasion, he reveals himself on the edge of the Sea of Galilee to the disciples who have been out in a boat all night long fishing. And they got nothing. Zip, zero, zilch, nothing. I mean, they're, they're open, the drive-thru at the local McDonald's is open because they got no fish to cook for breakfast, right? And Jesus is standing on the shoreline, and he says, throw your nets in on the other side. And they don't really recognize who it is. And I'm sure they're thinking to themselves, we've been fishing all night. We're the professionals. The nets are all put away. All I want to do is get home, get something to eat, go to bed. And yet, 
they throw their nets out. And it says that the nets were so full of fish that they had a hard time dragging them in, but Peter immediately reacts. He seizes Jesus. He jumps out of the boat, and he swims the hundred yards to shore. Then they have breakfast together. Then Peter and Jesus have a little of alone time. And in verse 15, this is what Jesus says to him. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So Jesus is sitting there on the shoreline with Peter, whose life has been a fisherman. He enjoys being a fisherman. And he's looking around, and there's the boats, and there's the sea, and there's the fishing nets, and there's all the fishing buddies that are with it, and et cetera, and just there's the smell of the fish that's aroma. And, and Jesus said, do you, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? And Jesus says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. What's, what's Jesus saying to Peter? He says, Peter, you know, you love this stuff. Are you willing to leave it behind in your journey of loving me? One last story, and then I'll dig into my points. Matthew chapter 14. We referred to this last week. I just want to draw a different thought from it for today. 827 in your pew Bibles, Matthew chapter 14, first book of the New Testament. Again, in context, Jesus has been with the disciples. They've had a busy day of ministering. They fed the 5,000 miraculously. They've sent them all home. The disciples have gotten in a boat and started their way across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. Jesus is withdrawn to the mountaintop to, to pray. Early in the morning, like 3, 4, 5 a.m., he comes walking across the water on the top of rough seas with heavy winds. And when the disciples see him, they're afraid. They think they're seeing a ghost. And Jesus says, says have courage in his eye. Don't be afraid. In our language, we might say, say, hey, hey, chill out. It's just me. It's okay. You know, and he's walking to them. And look what Peter says in verse 28. He says, Lord, if it's you... Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water, and he came to Jesus. You, you ever wonder how Peter got out of the boat that day? You know, I mean, I did this in the first service and lost my mic. You, know, you just wonder if he just came running down, he just jumped over both sides with both feet. Or if you wonder if it was one of these, you know, he just kind of got one foot over the edge of the boat, and he just kind of touching the water a little bit, and He's got the other one up, and he's just still holding on to the boat really tight. You wonder how he did that, right? But there's a truth in here. Can't walk on water unless you get out of the boat. Can't be a prophet if you're going to keep plowing fields. Can't receive the promised land and become a great nation if you're never going to leave home. And you can't be the foundation of the spread of the gospel around the world if you're going to love fish more than Jesus. You know what I mean? Part of our problem with greater is that we're not ready to leave our past behind, what we have. And, and so I got, I got the same truth said for you four different ways. So you can just pick the way you, you, you like it best. So, you know, 
Henry Blackaby, who wrote a, a book on, on how to walk with Jesus a number of years ago called Experiencing God, tremendous stuff, and if you've never done that study, I encourage you to do it, but as he kind of amalgamates a lot of different truths from Scripture, he makes this statement. He says, you cannot stay the same and go with God. If you're going to walk with Jesus, things are going to change. And if you think that you can walk with Jesus and keep life the same, keep yourself the same, just ain't going to work. You've got to be ready to leave home in your rearview mirror. Maybe another way to say the same thing. Every time that God calls you to something, God's also calling you from something. Let, let's sink in for a minute. God was calling uh, Abraham to the promised land, but he had to leave from home. He's calling Elisha to a life of being a prophet, but he had to leave the life. He had to go from the life of being a plowboy. And you could just kind of keep running the stories through. You know, every time God speaks into our life and calls us to greater, he's asking us to leave something behind. And if we aren't willing to leave it behind, the life of greater isn't going to happen. When God calls you to holiness, he's asking you to leave sinfulness behind. When God's calling you to wholeness, he's asking you to leave brokenness behind. You know, when God's asking you, calling you to joy, He's asking you to leave discouragement and despair behind. When God's calling you to hope, he's, he's asking you to leave behind worry and fear. And, and you can just keep the list going. And sometimes we're trying to embrace joy while we're trying to hold on <laughs> to all the worry. You know what I mean? And greater doesn't happen. Because when God calls us to something, he's also asking us to leave something. Maybe another way to say the same thing is you can never arrive if you never leave. <laughs> You know what I mean? You can't arrive if you never leave. You've got to start the journey. You have to leave home. And then this last statement, you can't walk on water until you get out of the boat. Now, I think there's some particular things that we need to think about today as we think about what hinders the unleashing of greater living in our lives. As we think about rekindling that and let that happen, part of it is that we need to let some things go. We need, to, we need to leave home and relatives and country behind. We need to burn up the oxen and the yoke and everything that goes with. Well, there's some stuff we need to leave behind. And for some of us, what we need to leave behind is our past. The thing that holds us hostage and that we just won't let go of is our past. You know, and, and sometimes that's our past before we knew Christ. And sometimes it's that journey since we've known Christ to where we are today. You know, there's been a, a lot of hiccups along the way. And we just hold on to that and say, well, you know, I, I've, I've messed up so many times. God just can't, he, he just can't do greater in me anymore. And we need to be ready to just take our past and put it on the altar and let it be burned up. Because God's grace is sufficient. I heard a couple stories this week I want to share with you about how God can deliver from our past and unleash a greater life. Thursday night, I was at the First Concern Banquet. And they, they always do a wonderful job with it. And, and the number of their staff members was just kind of telling about their work. One of them happens to be a lady who was active here at Hope Chapel. I had never really heard her story. But she stood up and she shared with us about her journey to coming to work at First Concern and the work that she had done. 
And as she stood before us, she said, you know, when I was 18 years of age, I had an unwanted pregnancy. And I aborted that child. She said, when I was 20 years old, I had another unwanted pregnancy. And I aborted that child. But then somewhere in the journey, she discovered Christ. Experienced His forgiveness. But never really experienced forgiveness for those choices that she had made. Then she was in a Bible study called Set Free. And she learned how to forgive herself. To accept God's forgiveness for those choices. How to forgive others who had been a part of that journey with her. And now she's on their staff working with women who are facing the same choices. That's, that's putting your past on the altar. Letting God's grace consume it and move forward. I was here last night. Our church plant, Seven Hills, had a baptism here last night. They baptized eight people. And, and Shane's a lot harder on it than I am. I just ask a couple of questions they can say yes or no to. But he makes them tell them their life journey and all this other kinds of stuff. And, and one of the questions makes them cite, recite their favorite Bible verse and all this other kind of good stuff. And, and one of the questions he asks is, how's your life been different since you've come to know Christ? One of the young men stood in the baptistry said, you know, I grew up in a Christian home, went to church all the time. He said, you know, and, and I, I heard the gospel and I made a decision for Christ and I was baptized when I was 10. He said, you know, but all throughout high school, I struggled with same-sex attraction. He said, when I got to college, I acted on what I felt. And he did that for a couple of years. But somewhere along the line, God drove him back into a Bible study. And he really began to look at the scriptures and what it meant to have faith and to really believe in Jesus and what Jesus had done for him and all those kinds of things. And he said, somewhere in that journey, I crossed the line to really being a follower of Jesus Christ. And he stood in the baptistry last night to declare that. And he, and he said, you know, said, and I, I was committed to leaving that life behind. Now he's married. Your first child is going to be born next year. And he's preparing for ministry to serve as a, as a pastor. Some of us just need to leave our past. Put it on the altar. Burn it up. And move on. We need to shed that boat. Kind of like the guys in Apollo 13, right? When they're looking out at their wounded, the wounded ship that kept them alive for so long as they were getting ready to move back to the planet. Sometimes we just need to jettison it, just let it go. But some of us are really held more hostage by our present. You know, we're, we're, we just feel like our circumstances have control over us. I just, I don't have any choices. It's just the way it is. Between my job and my kids and my, all my other responsibilities, this is just, we just feel like we're held hostage by our present. Other of us, we just hate change. We'll do anything to avoid any real, deep, systemic change in our lives and the way that we live. Because we just hate change. Others of us, we're, we, we've just embraced a way of looking at life that we're not ready to let go of. Whether we're, we look at life from an angry position, or whether we look at it from a position of bitterness. And some of us just love to worry. 
Some of us worry that other people don't worry enough about the stuff they should be worried about. You know, we, I mean, some of us, just, we're just dominated by this, this parts of that. We just need to put it on the altar and let it go. Just let it go. Burn it up. And go find Elijah and embrace on greater living. Step out of the boat. Push it away and let it go. And some of us, what really holds us back from greater living are the thoughts about our future. You know, I wonder if it ever crossed Elisha's mind. What am I going to do now that I don't farm? Where's dinner tomorrow coming from? You, you, you know what I mean? I wonder what, if Peter ever thought, you know, like, I don't fish no more. How am I going to make a living? How am I going to get by? You know, I can remember when Christina and I were praying through being a part of the Startup Hope Chapel, you know. I mean, I was serving as the Associate Executive Director of the Baptist Convention in New England. Good job, great ministry. I, I loved that role. And in a humble way, I, I was pretty good at it. And I could have stayed. I could have stayed for a long time. Salary was pretty good. Retirement was okay. I, you know, I had an inching to pastor a little bit, but I could satisfy that by doing some interim pastorates and make a little bit more money. Instead, God was saying, eh, there's a church, there's been a ministry in Sterling for 30 years that's never really reached very many people. But I want you to start something new. Mm, really? 30 years of no impact, and somehow it's going to be different. Eh, you know, and then, then we stepped off, got that first foot out of the boat for about 15 months when I was still serving with the denomination and pastoring the church on the side as it started. And we got up to about 75 to 100, and thought began to dawn on me and certainly dawn on the church that it was time maybe to get both feet out of the boat. So how are we going to make this work for me to be full-time? So it came up with a salary and a little bit of a pay cut and all that kind of good stuff. And, you know, but, but okay, but, you know, a good portion of that salary was coming from somewhere else. And it had a 24-month, it had a 12-month window. It may be another 24 months after that, but after that, I had to walk on the water all by myself or us as a church. And, and there was just a lot of things saying, this is stupid. Don't do this. You know, just keep pastoring the church part-time, stay over there. You got security over there. But, you know, there, there's sometimes we're just, we're just wrapped up. But, you know, when it comes to our futures, we don't want any risk. And there's part of us that we just need to lay that on the altar and let it get burned up. We got to get out of the boat before we can walk on the water. You see, I think the imagery that really stands to me from this passage in 1 Kings with Elisha is that Elisha, he didn't have a plan B. He had plan A. I'm going to follow Elijah. If that doesn't work out, I got nothing. <laughs> you know, when Jesus was saying to Peter, do you love me more than these? He's saying, I'm plan A, and you have no plan B. Abraham. No plan B. You leave, you leave home behind. You know, the Scripture says that for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. You know what that? Leave his father and mother and be joined with it so the two can become one flesh. There, there, there's just, there can't be a plan B. 
See, greater living for us requires that we burn the bridges. We're like Cortez, the conquistador. We burn up the ships that could take us home. And we go all in on walking on the water with Jesus. See, greater living requires a faith, faith that, has, that has following Jesus for plan A. And there is no plan B. We need to put our plan B on the altar. Let it be burned up so greater living can happen in us. So God can be glorified and Jesus' power can be revealed. Let's pray together. Father, I don't know about the people here, but I've been preaching these messages and I'm scared. You know, I just, I, there's a part of me that just says, what, what are you going to be asking? What are you going to be asking? God, when that moment comes, like it did 11 years ago, let me be all in. And God, when the moment comes for those who worship with me here today, let them be all in and experience greater living with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our worship team's going to come, and we're going to sing a final song of celebration to the God who's spoken to us. During this time, we're also going to receive our offering, and our ushers will come. You can put your connection cards in there and share with us ways that we can be in prayer with you. Let's stand. This is the first step of getting out of the boat. Let's sing together.
John, I'm going to ask you to lead us in our prayer in just a moment. And uh, let me encourage you to take five, some great new folks to meet today. You know, Jesus told his disciples, you know, he said, the one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is unfit for the kingdom of God. So perhaps maybe the question for us is, are our hands really on the plow? And which way are we looking? Emmanuel, lead us in our prayer.